0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, We are glad that you are here. Thanks for taking time to worship with us, whether you've been here for uh, 120 years or whether you've been here for, I don't know, about 120 seconds now. Wherever you are in that spectrum, we're sure glad that you came to be with us. There's a bunch of uh, our folks today who are not here because there's a high school retreat. And so a bunch of high schoolers are very cold up in the Berkshire Mountains. And I'm very comfortable and warm right here in Trumbull, Connecticut. Uh, so hopefully, the man, just uh, like we said last time, that the middle school kids went away. It's an amazing time for kids to get away. And so we're always expectant and hopeful and prayerful about what God may be doing in their hearts as they get away from their routines and just get to be together in community and, and see what God will do. So at Calvary, as you may get tired, I, I do say what I'm about to say almost three times a month. Uh, a person who I dearly love said, that was so good this past Sunday. You said like the vision of our church. I'm like, I kind of say that. I have said that about 52 weeks now, but I'm glad that on week 53 you've heard it, right? But I think sometimes when you walk into a church, you're like, man, what are they trying to do? Do they have something they're striving for? Uh, What are they bonding together? And what we're trying to do here at Calvary, we Kind of prayed to this and developed this over the last summer, rolled it out, um, and what we're trying to do is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. Build a body of disciples who personally and then together collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And almost everything we do here is kind of structured around that and tries to further that. And so if you're newer here and if you're like, man, you know, part of being in a body is being connected and cared for and known. And if we can help you do that, again, whether you've been here 120 years or 120 seconds in your bulletin, which we would love for you to pick up, there is a visitor contact card, and you can fill out digitally, you can fill it in person, uh, any comments, there's a space for you if you want more information, if we can help you, but we'd love to know if there's things that we can do to walk with you and help you, um, and so I would love to know that, if we can help build our body. In terms of making disciples, after this service is done, <clears throat> what we have uh, is for classes for adults and classes for the kids. And so for the adults this week, we're in this room, we have a parenting class that we're continuing. And we've been talking about all sorts of different things. of parents, how do we as parents try to shape kids' hearts for God? How do we participate in that? What does it look like to be in our culture? Uh, today, we're going to be thinking about discipline as the guardrail. What, is it, what are some thoughts on how as parents we can correct in this one? So that'll be going on. There's a great class on Jonah. And what I think you would enjoy about that is, man, amazing, rich, cultural Things you'll learn um, about Jonah and about the people God called him to, and about all these cultural differences. And as we think about what it means to be people who represent Jesus well in today's culture, it's an amazing opportunity to think culturally. uh, Years ago, how did one man do it? What did he do well? What did he not do well? And then, for those of us who are like, "Man, I don't, I don't want to really know about parenting," or "I'm good with Jonah," but man, I just want to know how can I grow closer to God what does it look like to pray? Prayer is so challenging for me. I'd love to know different approaches, different thoughts. There's a class that's kicking out, clicking off on Growing Closer to God that we'd uh, offer to you as well. So there's information about that in here, and we've been appreciative of the turnout, and I think for most folks it's been really meaningful to be in those classes together. So we want to invite you to that as they're starting off today. And then one of the things we'd want to do is to be able to impact other people with God's love. And here at Calvary, we have something called the Compassion Fund, and it is money that you give <clears throat> above and beyond what you give to our operational budget, and it is used to do two things. It is used to help those of us in our church who are part of our church body who are facing some issues in their life or financial challenges that we as a church can help them with some financial support to keep their head above water and get their head above water. And then we also use it when people in the community have needs. And we try to prioritize it for folks in our church, but have been also very generous outside. Um, And we haven't talked about it for a bunch of years because you guys have been so faithful in it. And so we've just been kind of uh, not having to replenish it. But... Over the past three or four years, we're so grateful for what you've given to us as a staff that's allowed us to serve many of you here in significant ways with financial resources to just help you if you're in a tough time, whether between jobs or in mortgages or there's a counseling situation that your insurance doesn't pay. And so that fund is low, and we want to be able to continue to help support and show God's love to each other and also people in the community who have needs. And so there's a way for you to give to that uh, when you, you know, part of what we get to do as disciples of Jesus is trust God with everything he's given to us. Our time, our resources, our life, our story, and our finances. And so what we provide the opportunity for all of us to do as disciples is to give to God's work and we can regularly do that through that brown, pizza hut, suggestion box looking thing, black, that's around, right? That's where you can put uh, one way to provide your funds as well as online, etc. But if you'd love to give to the Compassion Fund above and beyond that, um, there's a QR code you can give to it here, or there's some envelopes out on the little pine, I guess it's pine table, that will designate as Compassion Fund drop in the box. So some opportunities today for you to get involved in the body by letting us know you're here and how we can help to grow as disciples through these classes and to try to use who you are and together impact others with God's love um, by, man, helping brothers and sisters out when they need financial help. So I wanted to put that out to you, and I'm excited, as always, about Revelation. Uh, Man, what a great job that you pay me to just study God's Word. Like, whoa, that's kind of cool. I get to drink coffee and study God's Word. And a lot of other things that are very, very stressful and unpleasant. But we're going to think positively today, right? I did not look like this when I came. When I came here, I looked like a commercial for Botox. (laughs) I looked like a commercial for Botox and for that weird stuff men put in their hair to darken it, right? My hair was not gray. I had not a wrinkle on my face. But I do now. All right. We're going to pray, and we're going to get into the sermon. Father... um, Thank you that you are our vision and you lead us. Thank you that no matter what we're facing in our life, you are the cornerstone, and we can have confidence that we can build our lives upon you, and you will give us uh, a firm foundation. And so thank you for what we've sung together already, and thank you for the opportunity to come and to learn about your word, and as we learn about your word, to also think how it practically impacts all of us, and we pray that your Spirit will continue to work in our time, Father, for your glory and for the glory of Jesus, our King, and will this be helpful in the moments we have together now? And we're thankful for the Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning, this won't be a surprise. Guess what we're talking about this morning. Guess what book of the Bible we're in. Well, I'll... Wait, somebody said something random right around here. Somebody's like, Lamentations! No! <clears throat> we are, once again, in the book of Revelation. We're in the book of Revelation because many, many months ago we kicked off this series and we're going to be in this series for many, many more months. And if you're, if you're just visiting us or you've been in and out, uh, what this book is, the book that has been, um, you know canonized as the last book in the New Testament it's a it's a letter and the letter contains a lot of the content is a series of visions that most likely one of Jesus' disciples had, the, John, his disciple, series of visions. He was on house arrest. He was exiled because of his faith on a little island named Patmos. And while he was there, he had these series of visions where God revealed things to him and he captured that in letters. And over time, those letters have been preserved and been canonized. And we have that in the book of Revelation. And as we've taken this study, we've talked a few times now, there's many different ways that you can approach the book of Revelation. There's different theories on how to interpret it, and we are taking a few... Fu- yes! We're taking a futurist approach to this book. Could we be wrong? Yes, but that's okay, because that's the approach we're taking. We are saying that a vast majority of these things in the book are talking about things that are yet to come, that we have not experienced, that... When the story of human history and the story of biblical history moves to the final act of totally being fixed, that these are things that point us towards what those days and what those moments have been like. And so, um, here's what we've seen so far. I think it's kind of helpful sometimes to make sure we're catching up. And so, we we started off uh, in the first chapter or so with this vision and this description of Jesus, this amazing truth about the lamb and his characteristics and what he's like. And then we moved into, in chapters 2 and 3, uh, letters to seven churches. In 95 A.D., when this letter was likely written, there were some real-life churches just like us in existence. And in those real-life churches, just like us, there were things that were doing well, and there were things that they could do better. And so in chapters 2 and 3, there's these letters to these churches telling them what to do. <clears throat> then we start to move kind of towards this kind of starting to go things to come. Chapters 4 is a scene of a worship scene in heaven, and we pulled all sorts of attributes about God and what he's like. And then we started to move, um, I think, in chapter 5, that we, now we're starting to look to things to come. So right about here, it's, we're taking the perception of the per, position that these are things to come. And there's this moment when uh, there's this reality that things on earth need to be fixed. And in heaven, there's this question of who's worthy to fix it. And there's this symbolic scroll that we said either is symbolizing the deed to the earth, that someone has full possession of it and can take possession, or it's this scroll that has this rescue plan rolled out. And the the reality is that things need to be fixed, that we need to be rescued, that the earth needs to be the way it's supposed to be, right? With hope and blessing and peace and unity and no brokenness. And the question is, but who is good enough to bring that about? And there's some questions, and there's some doubts, and there's some sadness, but then what's revealed is that Jesus is. Jesus is. And there's a symbolic moment where this scroll, this deed, or this rescue plan is handed to Jesus, and he takes it, and then what we saw, starting in verse 6, is there's seven seals on chapter 6, there's seven seals on this, And each seal that he rips off to get to the content of this scroll, symbolically, we said, is linked with this moment in biblical history and human history that's known as the Tribulation. The tribulation. So these seven seals that we've been studying together, and we've gone through six of them, today we'll go through number seven, uh, deal with this moment in history called the Tribulation. Now, we kind of took a little, you can't even see it there. Maybe you can't see it there because maybe it's not there, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but there's this moment we said, we spent two weeks talking about, if you want to draw a timeline, which we've done, Some people think that there is this thing called the rapture, and we spent two weeks talking about, do the texts that um, sometimes are used to support that, do they actually support that? And we ended after two weeks of saying, I mean, they could or they could not, Right? But it's okay, because God's in charge. We don't need to know the perfect timeline. We know the perfect God, and we trust him. But for some people who believe in this rapture, this would kind of happen here, because the thought is that Christians do not go through the tribulation. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, because I don't think the text tells us. What we do know is that in the tribulation, if, a Christ, we will, if the Christians are here, they will never experience the wrath of God. We've talked about those promises a lot. Then, all this stuff, six things started to happen in the chapters on the seals, and it was heavy and it was oppressive, and so last week, in the past two weeks, God's called a timeout. And God, as we talked about it, said, look, I know that you're hearing all this stuff, people who are hearing this being read to them on the blue chairs in 95 AD, and I know you may be concerned, and I know you're wondering, and so for the past two weeks in chapter seven, God says, oh, let me encourage you. And we've talked about that for the past two weeks together. And so today, in chapter 8, we move back into this description of the tribulation. And So our text today is going to be Revelation chapter 8. And if you've got a device, if you've got a Bible, <clears throat> flip it there. If you've got it memorized, get ready to remember it. And in Revelation chapter 8, here's what we're going to see. Kind of three big topics, three themes, three structures that chapter 8 talks about. There's three main ideas, three main structural sections. We'll see that. And then we're going to pull three observations from those things. So uh, let's jump into it. We're now the seventh seal. I think uh, Demi Moore, wasn't she in a movie called The Seventh Seal? I know it was a long time ago. Only old people like me remember that. Uh, But this is, let's move into the understanding of the seventh seal. And here's what we read in Revelation uh, chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this is really interesting. Because if you remember all the previous six seals, when that seal is opened, there's action. There is no gap. <clears throat> seals ripped open, action happens. In this seal, there's this interesting time when the seal is opened, but there is no immediate action. Instead of immediate action, there is this period of silence. Structurally, if in a year you want to remember what chapter 8 talks about, the first structural section, the first topic on chapter 8 is this idea of silence. Silence. And commentators have many reasons and many thoughts uh, about this reason, and you can pop it up. First structural section is silence. And scholars suggest many reasons um, for this, right? So here are some reasons that scholars think this silence may have happened. And you can pop the slide. First one, there's just suggestion, right? That this silence we're going to see in a few moments that there's going to be some prayers that are offering. And Some scholars suggest that this silence provides an opportunity for these prayers just to be heard and just to be processed. Some think that it's silence because it is a moment in season of awe, when the angels and the saints and the martyrs in heaven know that God is about to do something significant on earth and continuing doing it, and there's just this sobered sense of heaviness and awe. Some people think that when God first created the earth, there was silence, right? The story of the earth begins in a a story where things are without form and without void, and it's silent, and then God creates, and God is about to begin and is in the process of this recreation, remaking creation, and some scholars think this links back to that, and like there was silence before the first, there's silence about the second, some scholars say, you know what, it it's tracking liturgy and there's moments of silence and worship service liturgically and it tracks for that. Um, other scholars think it's a technique that God is having John use to just kind of say that, hey, the seals, the visions about the seals, this is the end of it. Um, we don't necessarily know. But what we do know, right, we don't know why there's silence. Could be these, could be other reasons. But one thing we do know, and we're going to see in just a moment, is after this period of silence, God's going to act. We know there's silence, and we don't necessarily know why there's silence, but what we do know is that after this moment of silence, God is going to do something. And here's the first kind of practical observation or takeaway for you and me this morning. Based on what we see in Revelation... Silence does not indicate the absence of God working. It is often the space in which God is working, is preparing to work, or is preparing us. Silence of God in your story and in my story and in this story does not indicate the absence of God working. In actuality, that's silence is actually off in the space in which God is working or is preparing to work or is preparing you for what he's about to do. That's what God does in the silence. And the question for some of us this morning is this, in your story, in your life, in your trajectory, whatever you're facing this morning, is there silence of God that you see? Have you been waiting on something to change? Have you been waiting on something to happen? Are you praying for something? Do you want guidance? Do you want discernment? And all you keep coming up with is silence from God. Well, what you need to know is in that silence, just because God is silent and has not responded to you yet, he could be actively and sovereignly working to bring about the very thing for which you're praying. Or, and, he could be preparing you. Because he knows he has something for you. He knows there's another chapter for you. He knows there's some way he's going to work through you. He knows there's some way he's going to use you. And you're not ready yet for what he wants to do. And so in this silent moment, where all you want is the silence to be broken with clarity, it's the very space in which God is trying to work in us, refine us, Prepare us for the very next season and chapter and thing that he's going to call you to do and ask you to do. I think sometimes when we're in moments of silence, we think that means God is taking a nap on snooze autopilot. But man, God is sovereignly working behind the scenes in silence, and God is sovereignly working in you and in me in silence. And sometimes I think the perspective and the approach we should have, instead of asking, when's he going to do something? When's he going to do something? Why is he silent? A better question is, what can I learn? What can I learn? Because you may never know why he's silent or what he's doing, but you will know things that you can learn about who he is and who you are, and what he wants you to be. Silence is a first structural section. doesn't indicate the absence of God working, but it's often the space in which God is working, is preparing to work, and uh, is preparing us. Next question is, what comes after this period of silence? Right. So there's this period of silence, but it doesn't last forever because after the silence, God works. And so what happens next? What's the next action that we see then? Verse 2, so after this period of silence, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. We've seen language similar to this uh, a chapter or two ago. But a lot of this was talking about the altar and the golden censer. Links back to the way there was worship in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jewish people, they worshiped God for one period of time in a tabernacle, which was like a uh, roving church through the desert. And then more permanently, at a period in their history, they worshiped God in a built, established, fixed temple. In both of those places, there were sacrifices that were offered to God on an altar. And so what the priest would do in those tabernacle and temple is he would take some coals from the fire in which the animal was sacrificed and he'd have special tongs and he'd take the coals and he'd move them over to this uh, bowl that had incense in it. And he would take the coals from the altar and he would light this incense in the tabernacle of the temple and then that incense would ignite Right, And if you've ever seen incense, if you've ever been to um, some different liturgical services in an Episcopalian, Anglican, Catholic church, you've had incense swung around, right? And it goes up. And so in that tabernacle temple, incense would light and it would go up before God. And it would rise. And that was to uh, signify for the people who were worshiping their prayers that they were offering and to give them this tangible, visible demonstration that just as you're praying to god this incense is rising up and it's giving you a sense of what your prayers are doing in relationship to god this is that imagery you know recycled and repurposed and linked back to and what it represents is that the prayers of the saints are using the same symbol from the old testament in this moment that the prayers of the saints are rising before God. That all the prayers of the saints are coming up into the presence of the God. It's being conveyed that every prayer of the saint has come up to God and he's aware of it. It raises the question, well, what are the prayers of the saints? Like what's encapsulated by that phrase? What do these represent? And here's what from other texts it seems to represent. From chapter 6, martyrs were praying for justice and for vengeance. Those are the prayers of people who were unfairly killed because of their belief in Jesus who prayed, will you just fix it, God, and deal with it. They rose up to God. They've risen up to God. General prayers of Christians over the centuries who have prayed and asked God, will you fix?" The broken things. Will you make it right? Have risen up to God. Prayers for Christians over the centuries that they looked around and they've seen that the things in the world and things in the culture don't align and don't represent the values of God. And as they've prayed, will your kingdom come, will your will be done on earth that is in heaven, every prayer for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done has risen up to God by every Christian over the centuries has risen and gone up to God, verse 4 tells us, the rose before God. The prayers of the saints rose before God. Every prayer for something broken to be fixed, for what isn't right to be made right, for what isn't fair and just and the way God wants to be renewed have all gone up the presence of a powerful, loving, sovereign, good God. God has heard every single one of those prayers throughout the centuries, and God has heard every single one of your prayers throughout the years. They've risen up. Before God. What have you deeply prayed for in the past? What have you deeply prayed for in the past? I don't know if God's responded in the way you've wanted to that. I don't know if he responded in a way that you didn't want. I don't know if you haven't sensed a response at all, but what I do know is he's heard you. He's heard you. What wrong... Have you experienced? Who treated you so unfairly? When when did somebody betray you? When did somebody not believe the truth? And you've prayed, God, will you just make this right? He's heard you. Your prayers for you, for God to fix it, or for God to reveal the truth. Here's one kind of footnote for free. When you're in conflict, when you're unfairly accused of something, God knows the truth. God knows the truth. And sometimes absolutely the appropriate right thing to do is, man, you, you stand up and you defend yourselves, but you can't make every single person in the entire world in every single situation know what is true. Sometimes you just need to leave it into the hands of God. How often have you asked God, maybe not in these words, but man, I, you re, I, I read the news, news all the time. I'm, but I know there's a bunch of you, I know there's a bunch of people who don't. They're like, man, I don't even look at the newspaper. I don't check the news. I don't read Twitter. I think you're smart. <laughs> I want to become one of you people. Because like, you can't even scroll through the first three things without seeing absolute brokenness in our world. This is not the world God wants. This is the world we have chosen because we've rebelled against God. And this is the consequence of that. But God has promised to make it new. And how many times have you prayed, God, will you just fix this pain and this brokenness? Will your kingdom come? He's heard that. He's heard that. Second structural section is prayer. First big chunk of the Revelation 8 deals with silence, but then this next unit <clears throat> deals with prayer. Prayer. And the observation from this incense rising up to God is is what we kind of pulled a few weeks ago. But God has heard all your prayers. God has heard all your prayers. The thousands and thousands of prayers for it to be fixed. And in certain times and in certain moments, God has worked to bring about justice. God has intervened in the course of my story and your story to make things the way they should be. But there are tons of things that are not yet the way they should be that God has not yet fully acted to do. But here's what the story of Revelation is. God is making all things new. That's the story. He hasn't yet made all things new. He hasn't. But God is making all things new and the groaning, the, the Romans 8, love this verse talks about how creation itself groans. To be renewed. God has heard all those groanings from you and from me and from just knowing it's not the way it should be. Or having moments in life where we catch, see, you know, I know that things aren't the way they should be because we experience things that aren't the way they should be. Every time we go to a funeral of someone we love and know well, there is this internal sense of, man, this, this isn't how it should be. But sometimes the flip side happens that, man, there is just this moment where we catch a glimpse of the way it should be? And we're like, man, I've seen something reveal. I've had a moment. I've had a friendship. I've had a love. I've had a sunset. I've had something that said, man, there's something better out there that I'm not yet experiencing. God hasn't fully acted to make everything yet new, but we're about to see that happen. We're about to catch a glimpse of the moment in the future where God will finally just make it happen. Have you ever uh, taken a deck of cards and tried to make one of those little card house tower things? I, I think my kids went through a season for about four days where they were really into it. Okay? You get the card. You know how you do it. You put the base, the base, bop. You build levels on top of each other. But then what happens? It's looking good. And yours is bigger than your sister's, or if you're a parent, yours is taller than your kid's. And you know what you do? You get a little arrogant. And you think to yourself, I am the best card builder, so I'm just going to take the seven of hearts in my hand, and I'm going to go for one more layer. And the thing is already like, "Ah!" and you put that one more card on top of that deck and tower of cards, and what happens in the moment if you don't do it right? right? It all comes crashing down. That one card caused that whole tower to come to a tipping point. We're about to see God reach the tipping point. We're about to see God have the moment where he said, I've heard the prayers. I've seen the brokenness. I've dealt with all the things that aren't right. The reason God hasn't yet acted is, is in Second Peter, I think, but it could be First Peter. I might be the worst pastor in the world. Somewhere in the Peters. <clears throat> there, well, I am the worst pastor in the world. Just not every one of you has yet figured that out. Okay, so um, in Peter, it says the reason that God ha- Jesus has not yet come and ju- is because God wants everybody to come to repentance. The reason God hasn't yet fixed it and acted is because that means that there are people who have not yet responded in faith to who he is. And he's like, I do not want anybody who yet knows me to have to feel an ounce of this. And so I'm holding it back. I'm holding it back. I'm holding it back. I'm holding it back. But the moment will come where God will say, enough. Enough. Because I've put up with the brokenness for too long. It's a deck of card moments. It's the moment we see in verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, where it says this, right? So then the angel took the censer. And remember, this is what the incense is in that represents the prayers. It's like, it's like this, all these prayers just being held in the hand. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar. And he threw it to the earth. It's this symbolic moment where it's saying, for the centuries we have heard the prayers of everything that has been broken. We haven't yet acted. But now all of those prayers for redemption and for fixing and for the pain to be gone and for justice and for reconciliation, all of that I am now going to act to make happen and... Symbolically, that's what it's saying. God hears it, and every prayer God is now throwing back down the earth because he is going to begin to act to make those things come about and have things be the way they should be. It represents God's action in response to those prayers within this tribulation period, which does represent judgment coming during the tribulation period on people who don't believe in God in response to the prayers to be fixed because what we've said every week is when something is broken— You've got to get rid of what is broken in order to fix it. When your battery in your car is dead, you need to get a new battery. You remove the brokenness so you can put in what is not broken. And this third and this final section of Revelation deals with judgment. Judgment. And these judgments, like we've seen in the seals... Um, consequences for sin. In, in this next unit, they're linked with trumpets. We've seen seals in previous sections. And again, I know at least one person's like, oh, like, R-r-r-r. no, not those kind of seals, okay? Just to. I went to this church and the dude was weird. He was talking about this like mystic aquarium and the seal who was bringing judgment. Nope, wrong seals. Seals in the past brought judgment. Now all you can think about is a seal. Every seal. Right? Seals in the past chapters brought about judgment. Trumpets here are going to bring about judgment. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So I'm going to walk through what these trumpets represent. We'll have some charts, and then we'll pull a few theological uh, issues from them. So here are the trumpets. The first angel blew his trumpet, verse 7, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. And this is the last trumpet we're going to deal with today. Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So when we think about these four trumpets, here's what we see kind of coming from these trumpets, right? The first thing is hail and fire. The next trumpet brings about oceans impacted. The next one brings what seems to be this meteor, but it makes a third of the earth's water undrinkable. And then this fourth trumpet is this description of there being less light, right? More darkness, less light. So those are just looking at the plain meaning of the text, what each trumpet is associated with happening. Now, let's... Again, there's lots of people who understand Revelation in lots of different ways. What we're doing with these is saying, look, we're taking these uh, literally, right? We're saying that it, our take on this is, hey, it seems that something's going to happen, and these are the things that are going to flow, right? But there's other people who would approach this and say, these aren't actual things that are going to happen. You've got to read these symbolically. And so, for example, they would say, hey, this trumpet that's talking about less light And darkness, it's not actually meaning the sun is going to become dark. What it is saying is it's symbolic of spiritual darkness that's on the earth. Okay, So there are other people that will try to read these symbolically um, and just pull what the metaphor is. We're reading it saying literally, right, we could be wrong again. I don't think we are in this respect. But then there's other people who take it one step further that I don't think is helpful. And what other people would say is, well, we just had this train issue in Ohio, and now people in Palestine, Ohio, can't drink the water, and so that is the third trumpet. So a lot of people do that. And a lot of you guys pay $19.99 to watch the podcast or buy the book, right, where they will look at moments in history and try to link it with everything, and that hasn't yet all proven out to be true, so we don't need to go crazy linking it with things. So those are going to be the four things. Now, we've already seen these uh, seals that have happened, and so let's kind of compare what we've seen from the seals. So we've got... Seven seals, and then the trumpets. The seals we've seen are peace, war, famine, death, prayers for justice, earthquake, eclipse, and silence. And then the trumpets we see that we've studied so far. The four trumpets are the hail and fire. And I don't have it all memorized, so we need to pop the slide. Hail, fire. Ah, how come it's not here? <laughs> that is another trumpet that is in a hidden manuscript. The trumpet of the thing not working this screen. You guys are like, look up. I'm like, is Jesus coming? What? What? (laughs) Take me. Okay. Good gracious. Some of y'all are never coming back to this church. All right. So, pale fire, oceans impacted, meteor, water, undrinkable, and less light. Now, the first theological issue that kind of comes up when we compare those things are, are those things chronological? Or are they just restating the same ideas, all right? This is like a big issue. So for those of you who are really knee-deep in Revelation, I want to make sure we walk through this. There's one perspective that says these are, you know, 11 or 12 chronological things that happen in chronological order. So the first thing would be peace, war, famine, death, prayers for justice, earthquake, eclipse, silence, then hail and fire, then oceans, then meteor, then water, undrinkable, then less light. Another position is that they're not to be read chronologically, that, they ju- that when we start to get to the trumpets and the next thing we're going to get into is bowls, okay, so just get ready because in a few weeks we're going to get bowls that will also be uh, judgments. Some opposition is these aren't chronologically happened, rather these are just kind of coming at the same idea from different perspectives, they're trying to describe what's going to be experienced on the earth, and they're kind of looping a little bit, right? So they're looping. Um, you know, there's pros and cons of some views, right? Are the, And we're thinking about this because we're trying to learn what God wants us to know. Um, if you take it chronologically, and you think that it's however many things in a row that happens, uh, th- there's a few kind of challenges to that you've got to get around because over here in seal six, there's an eclipse, and it seems like the sun goes away. Okay? But then it seems like, whoop, over here, the sun's back again until you get to trumpet four. So that's yeah, explainable. But in, another interesting thing is if you look in the trumpet number one, it says that there was hail and fire. And if you read the text again, it says, all the grass on the earth was destroyed. Okay? It does say that. All the grass is destroyed. But then I think when it's either a later trumpet or, yeah, it's, I think the next trumpet or when we get to one of the bowls, there's going to be a line that says, but don't destroy the grass. Well, if all the grass was already destroyed, how could there be grass there to left? Some people will say, because this is a 100-year period and all the grass. But so there's challenges. If you want to take it as it's a restatement or it's a summary or it's looping, well, the challenge to that is that it does seem to describe things that chronologically flow. There are words like first and next and then. And it does seem to set this chronological order. If I had to lean, I think chronologically seems valid. I would lean chronologically. If other people lean, it's summary or statement. The big fancy word is recapitulation. It's a recapitulation view. It means you're looping. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to... Can I, I'm I'm going to tell you something now about myself as a child that I did not really realize until I got to Revelation. As I got to be a teenager, and my parents would have ideas about what I should or shouldn't do, and we started to get to the point in life where we had different perspectives on things. I would sometimes share my perspective. And sometimes after several moments of sharing my perspective, my dad, he would say this a lot. Well, you're just recapitulating. I'm like... I don't know if that's good or bad, like he, I, but I'm like, mm, I didn't know what to do. He used to word I didn't know, so I don't know how to respond, right? I didn't know what that meant. For 40 years, I had no idea what he was accusing me. He was just saying, like, bro, you're looping, right? Like, I know you want to go to the movie. You've told me that a hundred times. Recapitulating, right? So for those of you who want to say that these are looping and recapitulating and restatement, I mean, that could be fine as well. But I appreciate a perspective that a scholar on this says, and he makes this quote, right? And his point is don't lose the big picture. And this is what he says. Um, you could pop the quote. Had the author intended to in, uh, convey a price. Precise chronology of the last days, he undoubtedly would have made that plain. If he'd wanted us to understand that each item in any of the numbered series of plagues had its parallel in the other two, he could have made them match more exactly. And then he goes on to say, There is a progress in the book, but it is a progress that moves the reader towards a fuller experience of the divine plan for the final victory, rather than a progress that ticks off the minutes on an eschatological clock. What he's saying is this, Just be careful of trying to dogmatically want to understand perfectly how everything fits together to the detriment of missing the big picture, that there's this broader story being conveyed, that God is fixing things, but associated with those fixing things, there are going to be judgments and there's going to be impacts, and don't get so tied to dogmatic charts that you miss the big thing that is attempted to be conveyed. That's the first theological point. Second one, interestingly, is this, that these plagues, the trumpet plagues that we've talked about, um, seem to be patterned after the plagues in Egypt. This is kind of interesting. We've got a slide if you want to scribble this down real quick. So the first trumpet is hail, and in Exodus 9:22, right, that was hail. There were these When God was rescuing the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they were slaves and God caused certain things to happen in the Egyptian culture that was part of his rescue plan at them. And one of the things that happened was hail. Another thing that happened was waters were effective, turned to blood. And so the second and third trumpets seemed to link to that plague in the Old Testament. And the last thing that one of the other things that happened was the sun was darkened when God was rescuing the Israelites, and that's compared to the fourth trumpet in Exodus 10. So just an interesting parallel um, to talk about. But there's one last broader theological purpose. And here's the last broader theological purpose of what God is allowing to come down to the earth. And this is a big one, and here's what it is. We'll just say it first, and then we'll unpack it. The, the third section is judgment, and the third observation um, is, that, right, is this. Don't waste God's discipline or correction in your life. And here's why I say that. Because one of the purposes of these judgments we'll see later on, of these trumpets, in addition to punishment, is to provide unbelievers a chance to turn to Jesus. One of the purposes of these judgments and these trumpets is to provide unbelievers on the earth a moment, a chance to respond to Jesus. We'll see that in the next week, uh, weeks or so coming up. We'll see it in chapter 9, verse 20, where it says this, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hand, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and woods. Nor did they repent of their murderers. The rest of mankind who faced these judgments and others to come, did not repent. nor did they did not repent. What's inferred in that and implied in that is that part of the purpose of these judgments and this discipline was because of God as a God of grace who wants people to be in a relationship is to try to get people's attention to say, look, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to show you there's consequences for sin. I want you to repent. What's inferred in those judgments is, man, God's heart is to try to give people a moment to repent and turn to Jesus which they don't do. And we're going to see later it really just makes their hearts grow harder. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. And the third structural section is judgment. And the observation from that is this. We already said it. Don't waste God's discipline or correction in your life. Don't waste God's discipline or correction in your life. In this part of the story, right, in this moment in history, the reason for those judgments, the reason for that discipline was because, right, with the trumpets, God's trying to get their attention and say, stop, repent, deal with it. But God works that exact same way today in your life and in my life. The, the, the pattern that God has, the way that he deals with sin is to try to Sometimes allow us to face natural consequences for our sin or a loving father disciplines his children to try to get our attention, to try to bring us back. And if you're in a season in life where today you're facing some discipline or correction in your life, don't waste it. Don't waste it. If you're already broken because of sin... Why are you going to make God break you more? That's a heavy thing. If some of you are chasing sin and God has allowed things to fall around you to say, it's like the story of Jonah. His life started to come apart because of his rebellion and God's trying to get his attention. If God has done something in your life to try to stop you, and to try to turn you around and bring you back to him, and there is pain and there is brokenness, why would you want it to become even harder and worse? Why would you? Nobody wants to be there. But a loving father does things to his children to discipline them, correct them, to bring them back to safety and bring them back to restoration. Why would you want to waste the brokenness that God has already brought in your life? Today, we've seen things about trumpets, and we've seen some applications. We've seen the silence does not indicate the absence of God working. It is often the space in which God is working, is preparing to work, or is preparing you. We've seen that God has heard all of your prayers, all of your prayers. And we've seen this sobering challenge that we'll revisit in coming weeks, that, man, don't waste God's discipline or correction In your life. And maybe this morning you're in a tough spot because of the silence of God. Maybe you have been praying for something and it's silent. Should I stay? Should I go? God, what do you have next? God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, when are you going to remove this and stop it from happening? God, bring healing to them. God, bring restoration to this. And you've been praying and praying and praying and silence. Maybe you're starting to lose hope because you wonder if God has really heard you. He has. Maybe you're in a place where He's preparing you, maybe in a place where he's correcting you. And in that moment of silence or waiting, a correction or whatever, you don't have to be passive. You can't do things to change God's timetable, but you can still be active. And you can still be active during the silence of God by continuing to come to God. You can still be active in the silence of God by coming to God and honestly saying, God, I hate this silence. I hate it feel like you don't love me i feel like you don't care i feel like i don't know if i can trust you i know those aren't true so i'm just going to keep coming to you in your brokenness you can come to god and repent and you can deal with the sin in the moments of silence and correction and brokenness and preparation we don't have to be passive we can be active so I don't know what's going on in your story, but I know every single one of you have something going on in your story. And maybe it's not your story today. Maybe it's the story of a friend, of a family member, of a cousin, of a mom, of a dad, of a daughter, of a son. who There's something in their story. And I just want to give us a moment, right? We, we don't have to be passive in those moments. We can be active in those moments. And I want to give us a moment as a body to be active now. And I per- specifically want to give you a moment in your seats, to just pray to God quietly in your heart. For whatever it is you have been praying about, quietly in your heart for a long time already. And then after a few moments of prayer, just, man, just take some time. Repent. Pray. Be honest. And then we're going to have this special song that these guys are going to sing over us as a prayer corporately for us to help us affirm some of the things we should be feeling and allow them to sing it over you and then we'll join in our time together by singing. So take some time and just pray. And then we'll allow this song to minister and to worship to us.